This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I will be speaking with Jason Lustig. Jason Lustig is a lecturer and Israel Institute teaching fellow at the Schusterman Center for Jewish Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. His current book manuscript, forthcoming from Oxford University Press, is titled A Time to Gather, Archives and the Control of Jewish Culture. And it traces the 20th century struggle over who might own Jewish history, especially after the Nazi looting of Jewish archives. He has also published scholarly articles and essays on a wide range of issues relating to history and theory of archives, epistemology, and the power of knowledge. And he is also the host and creator of the Jewish History Knows podcast, which is online at Jewish History FM. He received his PhD at the University of California in Los Angeles Department of History, and he has also been a Harry Star Fellow at Harvard University Center for Jewish Studies and a Gerald Westheimer Early Career Fellow at the Leo Beck Institute. In today's episode, I'll talk to Jason about the intersection of technology and memory. We'll think about how and why we know what we know of the past and how an understanding of archives, and of course, their history, can help us make sense of our current data-driven environment as we engage with archives in an online digital setting. Hi, Jason. Hi, Deb. So, Jason, you've written really extensively about what you call the epistemology of the archive. Uh, I want to get us to a place where we can together understand those words. Now, epistemology means way of knowing, and archives have to do with history, a way of knowing the past. There are two terms here, epistemology and archive, that have, if you will, a certain dimension of both knowledge and history attached them. Tell us how we should understand those terms and maybe even give us a little bit of the history of those terms. Okay. Well, thanks, Deb. That's like a really big question. I'll try to answer it briefly. You know, I I teach a whole class on the history of archives, so I'll try to compress a whole semester into two minutes, uh, as it were. (laughs) On one foot. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Like you said, that there are two kind of key terms here, and they're heavy ones. They're big ones. Uh, The first one being epistemology, uh, like you said, which is how we know things, and archives, which is the second one. And maybe I'll start with archives or the archive. These are actually two different things. You say that archives have to do with history. It is true to a large extent, but it's not exclusively true, which is to say that archives are repositories of information, often institutions, but not always. Uh, and they are usually associated with history. We think about kind of a dusty space, you know, this like historical archive of the files of the past. Uh, this, of course, is the kind of the professional space of historians and archivists right, who who engage with the materials of the past. And this, of course, I think is part of the kind of the mythos or even like a fetishization of archives, this imagery of, of what an archive is, or what it looks like. But of course, archives are much broader than that. I would say that an archive really is any kind of repository of information. And this can both be physical, like a physical space, physical documents. It also can be ephemeral. It can be a, uh, a digital archive. It can be much bigger than that. That's that's a, like a very short way of thinking about what is 
an archive. We often think about, for instance, state archives, the records of administration and so on, uh, but also you have personal archives. Everybody has these days their own kind of traveling archive. We have all of our email in our pocket, as it were. And so many of these things are in the cloud, so to speak, even today when we think about our modern you know, contemporary technological world. So that's the question of archives. And yes, they do have to do with history, but they also have to do with how information is stored in the present and what that means about the future. One of the things that, that I write about and think about a lot is that archives are not just about the past. In many ways, they're really about the future. Uh, and we can get into that. So that's just one way of expanding what we mean by archives in a very broad sense. And then the second question has to do with epistemology, uh, which is, Again, a big word for thinking about how it is that we know what we know. And in many ways, when I think about the epistemology of the archive, archives are, of course, a critical component, not the only one, but a critical component of how we know things about the past. And I think that a major question that we can think about in general, especially in our own present moment of uh, sort of the information age on the one hand, and also an era of disinformation and misinformation is how do we know what we know about anything? And so I think that when we think about what I call the epistemology of the archive, this is a framework for thinking about how archives have been a component of having a sure sense of what we know about the past, but it also speaks to the role of records and the role of documentation in how we know about things about the present. For instance, somebody owns a house, right? How do you prove that you own a house? Well, you have a deed. How do you prove that you can drive? You know, you get pulled over by an officer and they ask to see your license and registration. If these are documents provided by the state that offer a certain degree of assurance that you actually have the legal right to drive your car and that is your car. Uh, and so what I am thinking about here is how archives broadly defined tell us about the past. There are other also places and sites of authority about how documents, how records, both physical and non-physical, tell us things about the present as well and also about the future, which we can get into. I want you to say a little bit more about how archives help us understand the present. That's tremendously important. Many people think about archives as where we came from. Of course, they absolutely help us understand where we are right now. What about our present do archives help us know or understand? How do archives become this way of knowing that you talk about? Okay, so I'll break that down into two things. So the first one is that archives again, both as institutions and also just as collections of documents, our own collections of documents, for instance, they tell us about the present in a number of ways. The first one being that, that, the, that the way that we organize information about the past tells us about the present. So this is something that I write about in my uh, own research on the history of Jewish archives, part of my book, which is to say that how these documents were preserved, where they were, which cities had archives. This is reflecting uh, not just the information about the past, but also the present day moment of that time. Uh, so just to give uh, an example of that, what's going on, say, after the Holocaust uh, in the process of bringing historical records to uh, modern day Israel, it's about enabling people to study the the past, obviously, but it also was a question of what would be the Jewish future? 
bringing things to Jerusalem, for instance, made a powerful statement about the idea that the modern state of Israel was to be uh, the Jewish state, that it was going to be the center of Jewish culture. And it's a really, I think, a powerful question about thinking about all these things that the Nazis stole right during the course of the Holocaust, where are they going to go? Who should get them, uh, especially when there are no heirs, when everybody was murdered, as it were? And so this question of where archives should go, it's not just about making it available for historical research, but it also speaks to powerful questions about the present and the future at their time in the 1950s, about what should be the Jewish future. So the archives are not just about the past, but they're about the future uh, as well. Uh, and so this is true, I think, both in the 50s, um, but it's also something that is really true about the present, too, uh, in as much as how the information is processed, how it is cataloged, what collections are there, and so on. Um, it reflects the priorities of the people living in their, in their own present or in our own present. So that's one way in which archives are not just about the past, but they're also about the present. And then the second way uh, in which they are about the present, and this, I think, brings it closer in with the broader issues of technology and ethics, which really, I think, is the focus here, is that I think that we live in an archival society, um, which is to say that everything is is sort of mediated through documents, mediated through records. This is really the, the center point, I think, of the information economy, as it were, which is that those who have access to information, those who own or control information, have political power, have technological power. I, I would say that, that archives are really at the core of the information society as a whole. And here I'm thinking not just about the dusty rooms of a historical archive, but about the, the advertising profiles that Facebook has on people or accredited agencies' records that they have on individuals to keep track of who is creditworthy uh, and who might not be. Uh, altogether, these represent the role of archives, the role of records uh, and record keeping in mediating our society and all the power structures that are part of it. I really want to get into that later on. Hopefully we can really talk about what happens when we move away from a state-centered collection of uh, documents and retention of information about people to a corporatization of that. But I want to, before we go any further, focus on the fact that this is a podcast about ethical technology. We'll get into technology and its relationship to the archive in a second. But before we do, I want to start off by focusing on that ethical dimension. One way that we might define ethics is in terms of what we care about right? Just basically what we care about. That's one definition of ethics. Why do we care so much about archives, about storing things in the first place? You called our society a kind of archivally obsessed society. What need or ethic undergirds an archival impulse? Yeah. So, so when you ask why we should care about archives, I think this goes back to something that I said just a moment ago, which is that we are living in a society today where archives uh, and records and the process of, of having proof of things is so central to everything. I think that, that we need to understand how the history of archives and about how the various forms that archives take today undergird everything that is taking place around us, ranging from the, the data collection that is part of the world in which we live in, broadly speaking, you know, 21st century technology, to the question of who gets to determine what gender somebody is, right? Is it what is written on your birth certificate or is it something that is self-determined? Is it the state's role in mediating that process? So I think that part of what is interesting and what is important about archives and why we care about them is because if we understand the power that archives, broadly speaking, have in our society 
and also the critical perspective that we might bring to them, it helps us to understand the world in which we are living um, and also a whole range of historical issues as well, which is to say that thinking about archives in a critical fashion and bringing to bear some of the tools of the humanities, uh, especially to some contemporary technological and broad social issues, can help us to have a, a nuanced conversation and a really important conversation about what does it mean to have all this information, both about the past and also about the present. And I think this leads to the ethical issue. Uh, I think that there are a lot of companies out there, for instance, that are really struggling with how do you ethically collect information and how do you ethically manage information about people? What happens when your database gets hacked and all the people's credit card numbers get out there in the world or any kind of other private information? I think that there is a lot going on in the technological world, high tech and so on, where people are not thinking critically about the technology stuff that they're doing. And I think that we can bring to bear some of the ideas of critical archive theory, some of the ideas of epistemology and, and so on, to think through the nature of knowledge and how it functions in our society and what it means to collect and manage information in an ethical manner. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think when, when we can think about this is at the intersection of, on the one hand, data collection, and on the other hand, a kind of data analysis. I think the data collection, whether it's people pulling information and filing by hand, or whether it's big data being amassed by algorithms, what we're really talking about here is this intersection of scientific knowledge and philosophical knowledge. And you've actually talked about archives as a place where scientific knowledge meets philosophical or humanistic knowledge. I wonder if you could say more about that. Um, this is an issue that I wrote about in a couple of different papers. And I think that, that, that one thing to keep in mind is that as we look at the history of archives in modern times and the history of archival practice in modern times, uh, and also the history of uh, historical scholarship for that matter, in the 19th century, people used the language of science to talk about what they were doing uh, in the humanities. The German term uh, Wissenschaft, often translated as science, people disagree you know, about how we understand that in terms of the humanities. But there was definitely a kind of a consensus among people, among scholars, that what they were doing was quote unquote scientific. Uh, I mean, we see this even up until the present, where in the field of archives, like professional archive management, they talk about archive science. And so I think that that's one way to think about here about the intersection between science and the humanities, which is to say that for a long time, people used that language to describe what they were doing. And they believed that, as, as they would say, quote unquote, history is a science and that archives were their laboratories, as it were. Um, and so I think that on the one hand, we can take historical figures at their own word, so to speak, and we can say, look, they saw themselves as practicing science in one fashion or another. So this is one way which is kind of interesting. But I also think that beyond the kind of historical question, there are fundamental issues about how we know what we know about the world, which can be asked both about the, the natural sciences, you know, chemistry, biology, all these different things, uh, and also what we talk about about history, about the past, which is to say that it's not such a clear-cut distinction between the quote-unquote objective natural sciences and the quote-unquote subjective 
human sciences or the humanistic fields of inquiry. And so I think part of what's interesting about archives as we think about the intersection between, say, science and philosophy or whatever, is that we need to understand that all of our knowledge is mediated. So take astronomy, for instance, right? I like to think about the night sky as an archive of the cosmic past. Most of the things that you can't see with the naked eye, you can see with the aid of a telescope. So what you have is a process of mediation from our observation point here on Earth into the ancient cosmic past of billions of years ago, perhaps, looking out at the universe. And it's the same thing when we think about archives and history. We can't go back and ask somebody what it was like or or view for ourselves what the past was like. We look at the past through the lens of the sources that we have at our disposal. And so I think that part of what is interesting here is to understand the overlap, right, both in terms of how historical figures thought about themselves and the way that they pursued their own inquiry, but also that the same kind of epistemological questions that we can ask about the human sciences, about the humanistic study of the past, can also be asked about other areas of study, other areas of inquiry that are perceived to be as more neutral or more objective. I think that we need to break down the barriers between these areas and understand that to some extent they are constructed. In the past, people believed that there was a similarity between science and the humanistic studies. Today, many people see them as being separated. You know, even on campuses, you know, college campuses, they are in different buildings, different parts of campus, and so on. And I think that this leads to a series of assumptions about the nature of knowledge and of different kinds of knowledge and also the valuation of knowledge, where people believe, for instance, that science, you know, STEM and so on, you know, perhaps have greater value than humanistic information. But that division was never historically the case up until fairly recently, right? Descartes was both a philosopher and a mathematician. Um, Leonardo da Vinci was both an artist and a uh, student of anatomy. Um, I do want to get a little bit into that technological uh, dimension. We've talked about the ethical dimension, which of course is always kind of shunted onto the humanities, but I hope as we're exploring this topic, uh, becomes uh, obviously connected to the technological dimension as well. Let's focus on that technological dimension. If we look, for instance, at the history of the typewriter, okay, this contributes to a massive explosion in the amount of paperwork that exists. Uh, it's much harder to produce handwritten documents. It takes a lot longer. When you have uh, typewriters, later word processors and computers, uh, you just have an explosion in the amount of data which is being created. And this is true both about paper documents as well as digital. Uh, there are various uh, statistics and studies about the explosion and how much data, how many gigabytes of data people produce uh, on an, a daily or annual basis. And this kind of exponential growth of information, whether we're talking about how many photos that we take on our phones, as opposed to the number of photos that you might take with an old style camera with film, these technological developments help us to create more documentation on the one hand. And then at the same time, we can see how technology theoretically also contributes to how this information is organized, how it is created, that we can see these two sides of the coin as being related to each other, which is that you have this process in general in modern times of the rapid explosion of information and the struggle to control it the struggle to keep it under control. Uh, and so archives and archival technologies are a part of this. And this is both true in terms of the emergence of what we call archival science and the attempt to create processes that would 
enable uh, a person, an archivist, to manage the growing amount of information that's being produced by a government agency uh, or something, uh, and also the way in which, say, digital technologies of the cloud make promises that they will help us to manage our own information in one fashion or another. And I think a lot of people look at the technologies of the archive, so to speak, uh, particularly the technologies of digital archives or whatever, databases, and think, oh, these are neutral. Uh, I think that part of what is important to keep in mind here is that none of this is neutral. Nothing is truly objective. Without going too deep down a hole of postmodern theory and so on and so forth, I think that a critical thing to keep us in check is that archival technologies, archival approaches to manage information have never really been neutral. This has been kind of the major trend in many ways in terms of how archivists approach their own work, say, since the 70s, which is to understand that archival practice is not about neutrality and objectivity, but about understanding the inherent subjectivity of what it means to organize information. It is sometimes believed, um, especially from the technological side, that technologies are inherently objective, right? And an algorithm is removing the human sort of subjectivity from anything. A database is inherently objective, but ultimately it still has the human hand involved in shaping it. And so what we see in terms of this is that the technologies contribute to the acceleration of the accretion of information, as well as the attempt to control it and keep it under control uh, and organized. But they also contribute to a misperception that these things are neutral in some fashion, because you have the increased uh, inclusion of technology, computers and so on, which are perceived to be you know, robotic, which are perceived to be avoiding the subjectivity of human involvement. But in reality, they are not objective. And we can see that the critique of objectivity also can apply to technology as well. Absolutely. I try to really stress that algorithms and the things that we use on a, in a daily basis that appear neutral are always, of course, created by human beings who encode into whatever they create, their own blind spots and biases and passions, and that these things are, are really the products and the outcomes of whatever model human beings on some level choose. I wanted to get back to something that you said earlier, which is this tremendous accretion of information uh, of data on a level that is is quite remarkable for our times and perhaps unparalleled in previous times. I pay Google a tremendous amount each month. Okay, it's not a tremendous amount, but it's an amount each month to keep an amount of data in excess of what I am allowed by their server. Uh, and I think that many of us are in the same place when we're just amassing so much information about ourselves that we want to store. And I think it's also important in this view that we have of this massive amount of data that we collect to also think about what the move to a digital form of technological archives requires us in a sense to lose. As a scholar, I've spent, and probably you've spent lots of time in archives looking at things like manuscripts where we can see drafts of what an author not only published, but what they wrote in the process of publishing. I can determine what changes happen between manuscripts, what an author has crossed out or added later, things that help me understand things like the creative process. That's archival information that we have essentially lost with a word processing document in which what I decide to delete just vanished. Um, we can delete something on a Word doc and it is gone. We don't have a way to keep track of those things. And I think about, you know, 
what archives I will leave behind and what processes will become invisible through digital storage. Does that change what we can know about the past, that kind of erasure that happens with the digital uh, technological form of archiving? Yeah, um, there's a lot to think about here. I think there are a bunch of people who have written about kind of the digital black hole, as it were, which is to say that when we talk about the preservation of the past, it's actually relatively easy to preserve paper documents if you put them in the right kind of folders uh, and so on. It, it obviously, it, it takes resources. It takes time and effort. Um, but preserving digital materials is another beast entirely, which is to say that, that you don't just need to preserve the document itself. You need to preserve the means of reading those documents. So I'm thinking, for instance, of, I don't know, let's say you have like files from the 80s. Okay, um, which were written on some word processor that is no longer in existence. Well, in order to preserve those documents in their original context, you need to preserve the computer system that produced them so you can then read them. Uh, I'm thinking, for instance, at UCLA, they have uh, Susan Sontag's uh, computer, actually, uh, in the archives. Uh, and there's like a whole thing where you can use her computer so to speak, to access the information as it was on her computer. And so there's a whole process of preserving historical information on computers that it's not so easy to do. So what this means, and like, this applies to a lot of, uh, of elements of preserving digital culture, which is to say there's the idea that you put something up on the internet and it's there forever. You, you can't get rid of it. That's true to some extent. But there are gaping holes in our historical record of early internet culture, for instance, and uh, there was a thing uh, earlier this year with Yahoo groups, uh, I believe, where they were deleting their archives. There's a lot going on there in terms of thinking about what we will know about the past. And I'll, I'll say a couple of things about that. The first thing is that, that, that this is definitely true, but there are also huge gaping holes in what we know about the past before the digital age as well. You know, I think that as a historian of the modern era, you know, I'm blessed to be working in a time period where there's a ton of documentation. But if I were working on the ancient world, for instance, we're really working off of fragmentary evidence in many ways. So I think that, that one thing to keep in mind is that there are always gaps uh, in terms of the historical record. And the second thing that I think that we can say about it is that that there are efforts to preserve digital materials. And I'm also not so sure that you gave the example of drafts of, you know, of articles or, or whatever kind of documents. People still hold on to those things, perhaps. I don't know how you write, but I hold on to old drafts of things because as you delete things, there are fragments or things that you might want to hold on to for later. And I think that because of the expansive storage capabilities that we have now, there's no reason not to hold on to things that are kind of would otherwise be tossed in the trash bin. So I think that in the future, historians might look back on some of these things and find that there are differences, of course, between what digital technology does to what we can know about the past. But in some ways, it's not that different. You use the word blessed to describe the state of current scholars working through an excess of information. And I just wanted to uh, maybe give that word blessed a caveat, because now I'm thinking about how much I keep and what it would be like if one day somebody decided to go through my archive of about 18,000 unread emails, many of which are subscriptions to Bed Bath & Beyond and coupons and things like that. I don't even want to guess how many hundreds of thousands of messages I have stored of 
extreme to negligible amounts of important information, and many of which, justifiably, I probably needed to respond to and did not. Things in my email box that I think are important that perhaps are in the grand scheme of things unimportant. Mass records of mass emails, things that I didn't think were important to read are all commingling in that inbox. Everything that I've ever received because I don't delete emails. A traditional archive, I think, as you talked about earlier, assumes that we keep things and that we accrue things that we want to remember, things that have significance. But they also assume that we don't keep everything. A traditional archive assumes the importance of forgetting because we can't keep everything, so that we only keep that which we deem important enough to remember or to record. But in the case, for example, of my email and all of my Bed Bath & Beyond coupons or, or the internet, you might say broadly, nothing is ever forgotten. I think there's a way to retain everything, to remember it, to record it, to keep it. How does that change the concept of the archive or, or does it? I think... Like you said, holding on to all of those emails in your email. Again, I'm not so sure it's so different from all the junk mail that we get in the physical mail, um, except that there's no reason not to keep it, right? So I, I might get like a, to use your example, Bed Bath & Beyond coupon in the mail. Well, I'll just toss it in the garbage or in the recycling because I don't want that taking up space in my house. But if we have theoretically infinite storage, there's no reason not to just ignore it and just let it let it sit in your inbox or in your archive. I think that that speaks to kind of the archival ethos of our own era, where I think the term archive, the button archive, so to speak, or the, the archive button, as it were, is a much more prominent thing in how people manage information, because there's no reason to throw it away. You just press the archive button and it's out of your view of sight. Uh, it's just there for later. And I mean, I'll admit to the same thing, right? I have... I don't know how many tens of thousands of emails sitting on my computer that probably I could delete. Uh, and it wouldn't really hurt anybody to delete all of those newsletters and not even spam, right? But announcements about events that I didn't go to or anything like that. But it's just sitting there. Why do you keep them? Well, I don't know. Why not? Right? I mean, I think uh, <laughs> um, it's it's almost more work to delete things these days than it is to just keep them around. And I think that speaks to just the convenience of technology in a way. And I think that if you went back in time and you gave someone the option to just never deal with throwing away their, their junk mail, they probably would just keep it around too. What it speaks to in many ways is the challenge of technology, which is that it creates the false appearance of infinite space or of infinite knowledge, when in reality, it's mostly useless. This is the case with, with all these emails. There's a famous parable that, of course, comes to mind, which is Jorge Luis Borges's short story, Funes, His Memory, in which the principal character cannot forget. Remembering everything is, for the character, a curse because he remembers every little detail. And by remembering every little detail, he can't actually identify what is essentially important. Instead, what he does is he treats all memories equally. And I think what Borges points out in this short story is that forgetting is as much a process of meaning making as remembering is, that the act of forgetting allows us to retain some memories and for those memories to become prominent and to guide us and to allow us to make meaning. That's what you were talking about at the beginning of this conversation, right? That what we keep allows us to create meaning in the present. And Borges writes that what it means to think is, and I'm quoting him here, to forget a difference. 
to forget a difference. Forgetting it allows us, and, and this is his words again, to generalize or to abstract. And, and as Borges writes his character who cannot forget, in that overly replete world of this character, there is nothing, Borges says, nothing but details. Is Borges onto something with the internet's tendency to collect everything has this inability to, and again, I'm falling back on his words here, forget a difference, become a way of inhibiting thinking or knowing or understanding. So I'm so glad you brought up Borges. I think this is such a great example of thinking about the connection between remembering and forgetting. But these are two sides of the same coin. In order to remember something, you have to forget other things. Uh, Let me tell you a story about guy who kind of was like this. There was a figure by the name of Gotthard Deutsch, uh, who was a professor of Jewish history at Hebrew Union College, which is the Reform Rabbinic Seminary based in Cincinnati. Today, they have branches in New York and LA and also in Jerusalem. Um, but at the time in the early 20th century, it was just in Cincinnati. And so this was a, a guy who was a collector of facts. So by the time that he dies in, uh, in 1921, he has collected a tremendous catalog of information about modern Jewish history. Basically, he read through all the papers, all the books, and just wrote down each individual fact on an index card. And so he had about 70,000 individual facts of Jewish history. And he was kind of viewed by his students and and by his colleagues as as this kind of walking encyclopedia who knew everything. And yet he did nothing with it. He never actually published a major book. And I think that, that what is amazing about this whole development is that it speaks to the challenge of remembering too much, that that when you can't forget anything, that, that you can't really focus on what's important. So I think that this is uh, a really important thing for us to keep in mind about our information society and information overload, that I think I use the word blessed to say we have access to so much information about the past. In modern times, it's also a curse, right? There's so much to go through. You could sit in an archive indefinitely going through more and more information, more and more records, reading more and more things. At a certain point, one of the things that you have to do as a scholar is know when to stop. All of this is to say that 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 it is true that forgetting is just as important of a process of thinking about archives as it is about remembering. I have another question about forgetting, and this is taking us in a different direction here, but I think is also incredibly important to think about when we're thinking about the ethics of remembering and forgetting. Many EU or European Union countries have introduced legislation and ethical conversations about what they're calling the right to be forgotten. The right to be forgotten is described by the EU as reflecting the claim of an individual to have certain data deleted so that third persons can no longer trace them. It can be defined as the right to silence on past events in life that are no longer occurring. The right to be forgotten leads to allowing individuals to have information, videos, or photographs about themselves deleted from certain internet records so that they cannot be found by search engines. As of 2011, there are few protections against the harm that such incidents, including revenge porn sharing or pictures uploaded due to poor judgment, can or must be deleted. The right to be forgotten is distinct from the right to privacy in that the right to privacy constitutes information that is not publicly known, whereas 
The right to be forgotten involves removing information that was publicly known at a certain time and not allowing third parties to access that information. You know, just this morning, I was reading an article in The New Yorker published this week about the tremendous damage that has been done to people through the publication of things and the retention of those things by the internet that that keeps things forever. In one very famous case in the United States, and this is perhaps the most famous case on, on the right to be forgotten, in the United States, a family of a California teenager who was killed in a 2006 car crash fought for a decade to keep graphic pictures of her death off the internet. And in this case, the pictures of this person with her body slumped over the wheel of her car were taken by California Highway Patrol and were never intended for public release, right? This is not a case of somebody who puts pictures of herself online and then feels that it was perhaps a case of bad judgment. These these pictures were never meant to be publicly seen or accessed. And CHP later admitted that two dispatchers leaked the images online. But yet, these photographs continue to be linked to her name and names of other members of her family, members of of that family when they search themselves on the internet or where other people search them on the internet see very graphic images on google or yahoo or bing and this has caused the family a, a significant amount of distress as they have to relive the shock of her death and and the graphic images of her death and have them publicly distributed and i can think of so many cases that call into question the ethics of an archive that sees all and that retains all so this new kind of archival drive that you're talking about, or maybe it's the spirit of the moment that we're in, seems to have also caused a fair amount of suffering. How does the right to be forgotten intersect with an archival ethic? Okay, so so I'm glad you brought this up. Um, it's not just about the right to be forgotten. So I think that the GDPR, the the general data protection regulations uh, in the EU are incredibly important. Um, and it's not just a question of people's right to privacy or the right to be forgotten, um, but I think that it speaks to uh, a new ethos about thinking about who should have control over data, who should own that information, and who should be able to, to, to make demands of it in one fashion or another. And let me explain what I mean by that. One of the, the major developments in terms of critical archive approaches in the field of archival science, if I'll use the term, is a general question over who owns the information in archives. Who does it belong to? Does it belong to the archive itself? Does it belong to the person who it's about? A lot of the debates around this uh, in the field of archival practice, uh, a lot of this is coming out of, out of Australia, uh, in as much as they are engaging with the question of colonial information about uh, indigenous people. You know, who does that belong to? Does does this belong to the native people? Uh, does it belong to the archive that holds it? And I think it speaks to a broader question about who owns the information about yourself. There is a police report about yourself. Now, does that belong to the police? Does that belong to the people who it describes? I think that, that there's a really big question here about who gets to control the information in an archive, whether we're talking about a historical archive or uh, some kind of database online or anything like that. And so I think that when you look at the GDPR in general, it speaks to this idea that the people who the information is about should have control over their own information. And this this relates both to the right to be forgotten, which I'll get to in just a second, but it relates to the idea that you should have access to a copy of all the information that a company has on you. It relates to the uh, idea that some people have proposed that you should be paid for your information by these major tech companies because they are making money off of you. It relates to this idea 
also to the right to be forgotten, which is to say that if there's something out there which you think is embarrassing or that brings you pain, you know, some of the examples that you gave are, are really, um, I think, vivid examples of this, that you should have the right to tell a company like Google that you that it should not be easily found. Now, of course, if they remove it from the search results, it, it means that it's still out there somewhere, perhaps, but it's not easily searchable. And the idea of this, of course, just relates back to this question of who owns the information. Uh, I mean, the archival world, they talk about things like shared provenance or multiple provenance, which is to say that it can come from multiple angles, uh, as opposed to just being the, the ownership of one institution or something like that. But I think that, that that part of what's interesting here is about how some of the ideas that have been developed in the scholarly world are taking shape in the broader policy world and in the technological world, even if they aren't necessarily aware that they are putting into action this idea of shared provenance right, or this idea of shared ownership of, of, of information. It gives form to this idea that you as an individual should have control over the information about you, as opposed to it only being the property of the institution that can then do with it whatever they want, whether that's the government or a major corporation or whoever. I want to ask a question about the kinds of institutions that collect and retain and uh, hold the power of your data over you. You know, in, in the origins of the archival imagination, there is the state. And the state as the collector and the state as the, the maintainer of data. You know, I was having a very interesting conversation with somebody in financial technologies, and you talked about the fact that your social security numbers, your spending habits, and your credit report is not maintained by the state. It's maintained by private companies and corporations who have a very different interest in, at, at their heart than the state does. and. I think we're getting into a, a place right now where our data is at, at the mercy and we, as the people who that data affects are at the mercy of these kind of corporations who might have very different intentions in collecting our data than the state. Do you see this as a concern when those who maintain our data have specific financial interests in maintaining our data and whose cultivation of our data is a specifically private and capital ends. In the history of archives, um, in terms of institutions, ideas, all the different things, um, of course, the state looms large. The emergence of modern archives as institutions is closely tied to the, uh, the creation of the modern state. I think that also, traditionally speaking, the state and state authority is at the heart of the nature of, of archives as they have operated in modern societies. And what I mean by that, that the traditional archive is a state archive. The early modern states, particularly in Europe, but also elsewhere, they have a general problem of, of information. How do you maintain control over a, a wide area? of territory. Um, this is true both uh, within, say, the country itself. Also, how do you control the colonies right, for European colonial powers? But ultimately, it's a question of control of information. The creation of means of surveillance over the population, like, for instance, even just knowing who is in your country, right? Who are all the subjects or who are all the citizens? You know, the census in the U.S. is a tremendous tool of power in terms of the construction of the U.S. as a a country with uh, some form of central government. Even up until today, I'm always amazed at sort of literally counting every single individual in the country. Uh, and so you have this archival impulse in terms of the modern state to collect information in order to solidify its power. 
you know, there's a, a French scholar, for instance, in the 60s, who wrote about uh, early modern archives as the engines of state power. There's this uh, idea that that they transform from uh, this into kind of the laboratories of, of history. Of course, part of what's what's problematic there is that archives, of course, they are useful for historical study, but they never stopped being tools of state power. And I think that, that this speaks in general to the role of the state in terms of determining the nature of reality. I mean, I don't believe the state determines reality, but I think that the state would like to. Again, I talk about the role of the state as a hegemonic actor, authoring uh, and issuing authoritative documents that say, you own your car, right? Or you own your house, or you were born in this place and time. You know, somebody being alive or dead does not need to be authenticated in a document, right? You know that such a person is dead, but you still need that state document to say, yes, this person is dead, or that this person, you have a copy of your social security card, which you need to provide a copy of it whenever you start a new job or something that proves that you have the right to work in you know, this country, for instance. There are so many ways uh, in which the history of archives is tied in with state power, uh, going back to um, the way in which uh, records were the proof of ownership over all the land by uh, you know various kings and princes and so on and so forth, you know, all the way up to the the surveillance and documentation of the population uh, in the purpose of of constructing citizenship in the process of constructing a society, making it you know more efficient, possible to discipline people uh, and so on and so forth. But I think that what you're speaking to here in terms of the role of uh, private corporations in terms of collecting information and so on, one of the important developments of you know, recent times is the decline of state power, actually. Not its total breakdown by any means, but you have more of a competition over power. It's not exclusively a world of nation states by any means anymore. Of course, it's tied in with the broader attrition of nationalism in certain ways um, as, a, as, a, as a social force. Of course, nationalism is still around, but it's not the only game in town. Um, and the same thing is true about the state, where global corporations and so on have a degree of their own autonomy separate from the state. Even think about, like, I don't know, like Apple saying that they're based in Ireland, right? You know, so they can avoid paying taxes. This is a company which is asserting its, its tax independence in many ways, right? They can determine their own center of business for tax purposes, even though they're obviously based in California. All of this is just to say that I think that the, the problematic nature of the privatization of information in many ways um, is in some ways just an extension of the question of the power of the state to determine what what it is that is reality. Fundamentally, the state is about determining reality. Literally, the power of of the state is to erase history, which is to say um, the power of the uh, first instance of the president to pardon somebody is to erase the crime that was committed from the past. Essentially, so what you see is, I think, that, that one way to, to analyze the idea of the state uh, and to analyze it is through an archival lens and to understand the role of the state in recording history, the role of the state in determining what history is, uh, or at least the attempt to try to do that. Uh, in many ways, I think that historians, scholars are pushed back against that, right, to try to to unearth the histories that the state does not want you to know. You know. Think about, for instance, the genocide of Native Americans, right? This is something that people don't talk about as much. It's not something that the U.S. government wants us to think about necessarily. Uh, and the role of scholars and the role of thinking about the past is often to find things that are hidden away in the archives or that that, that are that, that are not given the full light of day. And the same thing is true, I think, about corporations and companies, um, that it's all about the control of information, determining who has access to it, who has who can use it, uh, and to what ends. And I think 
that the the privatization of the information industry, uh, as it were, I mean, even when you think about like companies that are uh, involved in the process of surveillance, right, working for the government to help to 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 uh, offer facial recognition technologies, you know, so on and so forth. These are all things that are contracted out to various private companies. Yeah. I don't want to sound too paranoid or too crazy, but I just think that this is all part of thinking about the power of information. Uh, and the question of who is doing it, it's not that it doesn't matter, but it's all kind of part of the same game, part of the same history. I want to switch gears here and ask about a critical component of our work as academics, which is the teaching side of things. How do you talk about archives of students, particularly when you're teaching them to do their own research online? What kinds of insights or instructions or warnings tend to come up in your teaching when you do this? I think that it's really useful for students and just for people in general to think about what is an archive in actual terms. And again, I think it's not just about students or anything, but it just has to do with the world at large, um, is understanding the archival mediation of everything around us. Um, so one of the things that I like to talk about and like to think about is Netflix as an archive or Spotify as an archive, uh, which is to say that part of what is interesting about the archival nature of our society uh, that we live in today is that we actually pay monthly fees or whatever to access an archive of entertainment. And what we watch or what we get access to is often just about what's in that archive that we pay a monthly fee so that we can watch or listen, or, or whatever. Um, and I think that that's really useful for people to understand how everything is an archive, on the one hand, and also about how everything is mediated, um, which is to say that as people do research, and this is research on any topic, not just for a research paper or, or anything like that, is that if we understand that uh, Google Books is an archive, right? And people often search on Google Books for various things, especially right now when we can't really go to a library uh, in the same way that we did before, just because everything kind of shut down or it's just not so safe. We are in many ways at the mercy of these digital archives, these digital holdings that that sometimes have some things and sometimes don't have things. And of course, all libraries have limitations. Even the greatest libraries of the world don't have everything, even if they may try. But fundamentally, I think that there is a perception that, for instance, searching for things online, you are searching through everything that exists. That's, of course, not true by any means. And I think that most people understand that, that not everything is online, but it's easy. It's easy to search online and try to find things and therefore miss things. And I think that that is part of the challenge here, which is that as people use the internet as a tool of research, not just for academic research, but just for learning about the world, as it were, um, it can create a skewed perspective on things uh, because some things are not there that should be. Uh, and that could be because of, you know, legal IP issues, right? Google Books doesn't have a lot of things uh, that you can access online just because it, it just, you know, is is a question of licensing, right? That's one thing. But there's also a lot of misinformation online. Uh, and this is really a critical issue of uh, engaging with the Internet as a, a information repository. We are theoretically living in an information age, but in many ways, I think we live in a disinformation age. Uh, now I'm thinking about how internet archives and access to information and search for truth is really part of our moment. And right now we're in a space where I would say that conventionally shared beliefs in factual realities are in a, a tremendously fractured moment. Uh, you can say that it's unprecedented. We could argue about that, but we won't. But they're certainly polarized in, in an extraordinary way and filtered through 
this tremendous, what I would call an internet bubble, documentaries like The Social Dilemma, researched by so many thinkers and scholars and reporters right now, show how social media targeted advertisements through digital platforms and targeted advertisements with kind of laser-like precision are, are really right now kind of... Uh, polarizing what facts we know and what realities we believe in. And they're no longer the same guardians or gatekeepers for what we retain and access this information. As a scholar of the archives, how do you reckon with this kind of fragmented, polarized belief in what counts as authentic, true information? How do you reckon with that? And what do we do about it? Okay, big question. And I think a high stakes one in a lot of ways, because I think that you're right that we live in a moment right now where in a way you have at least two totally different universes in which people are living. At least two. At least two. And that's only speaking about the US. I think it it goes back to sort of the the question of epistemology, uh, the question of how we know what we know, how do we know what's true? And when I spoke about it before, I was talking about the epistemology of the archive, thinking about how do we know what we know about the past and the role of archives, historical archives, in in mediating that process. But I think that at the heart of the critical humanistic approach to archives, both within archival practice, also within history, literature, basically all the fields, it's tied in with a certain critique of the idea of objective truth. And of course, the great irony of all of this is that now we, certainly given our contemporary political moment and current occupant of the White House, now we find that some of the stalwart liberals or, or and progressives uh, of the academy are coming out as the uh, sort of like in defense of objective truth, you know, in the face of rampant lying from the current president. You know, the, the example that I, I talk about with my students sometimes, um, I try not to talk about politics in class, but but in a class on archives and truth, um, or really in any class, you know, students want to have examples to think about from their own lives. But you think about Trump's inauguration uh, in 2017 and the question of what was the size of the audience? Right of of the crowd at the inauguration, the blatant lying about you know the idea that Trump had a larger inauguration when clearly he did not. When you even look at the photos, right, and 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 it leads to major questions about the nature of truth. Who gets to decide what is true? You know, I mentioned before the idea that the state tries to determine the nature of reality. That is the nature, in a way, of the historical agency of the state, uh, and is tied in with the archival power of the state. But it it goes fundamentally back here. Right, you have Trump and his people trying to to, to determine reality, you know, against the actual objective reality, for instance, that he had a smaller inauguration than Obama did. And so what you see in all of this is this tension over this question of does objective truth exist? This is a a major historical, uh, intellectual, philosophical debate that goes back for thousands of years. Uh, And I think that we can just see how important and powerful this question is even coming up until the present. Truth has never been objective, right? It's not like we have moved now into an era um, where objectivity has been thrown out the window, but that it's often a question of power, of who gets to determine what is true and what is not true. That the understanding of the mediation of knowledge, the understanding of the mediation of truth through power, and this is where archives really are central to it, needs to be a foundational understanding of how we engage with information as a whole. So that's just a long way of saying, I guess, I mean, I guess I'm of the school of the postmodern thought that there is no such thing as truth. But I think that that idea has often been caricatured in many ways that are really problematic. The fundamental thing is to always be skeptical uh, and to always bring a critical perspective to what we're reading, to what we're studying, to what we're thinking about, 
And that's the only anecdote in a way to misinformation is not to say that everything is fake news, right? You don't want to say that, but to understand the power of information and to understand the power of the claim to truth uh, and that this is something that is being wielded and that is being weaponized, I think, to our detriment uh, in a lot of ways today. To end our conversation, I have one final question about the nature of truth itself. Are you optimistic that things will change, that we can get back to a place of shared archival reasoning? Would you want to see a return of a more traditional form of archival reason? And if so, why? Okay, there's a lot, a lot to get into there. I know you said this is the last question or the last set of issues, but uh, you almost opened up a whole other conversation in that respect. I think that in many ways, we live in a world that is still dominated by this archival reasoning. And again, it's not just about physical archives or paper or anything like that. I think the great example is body cams. The push to have police officers wear body cameras, you know, that will document what they are doing, uh, providing evidence in some way of, you know, potential wrongdoing or or whatever, and then when they turn them off, right? This is a critical issue. Who gets to film? Who gets to choose when not to film? You know, today we see, for instance, during the uh, you know, the recent protests, people are constantly filming because they believe that that archival record. Of, uh, of what is taking place will protect them, both to document what is taking place for you know, historical purposes or to spread the word about the protests and what's taking place, but also that, that having uh, some kind of record. And again, you, you see you know, a lot of people you know, not only wearing cameras among the protesters, but just literally walking around with their cameras rolling constantly you know, because they see value in this archival record, as it were, of what's taking place, you know, both for historical purposes, for knowledge purposes, but also as a record to protect themselves so that you know, when they're attacked by somebody, they have proof of what happened or if somebody else gets attacked by the police or by counter-protester or something, that there is evidence from many angles of, uh, of what exactly took place. Uh, and that's just something that we're seeing recently. I think that, that what we find is that these are all mediated, these are all enabled by storage technologies, right? The fact that your camera is uploading things to the cloud as it as, as it rolls, as it were, means that there's no longer a uh, limitation on how much video you can take, right? Um, I think that we live in an archival world where this is an incredibly contentious political question, right? Who gets to record the police? You know, should the police be recording themselves all the time? Uh, it's also an incredibly powerful personal issue, right? You know, if you have kids, you're constantly taking pictures of them, Right. You know, I know I am with my kids, you know, and that's partially a process of you want, of course, to have great memories of when your kids were young and all these different things. But it speaks to our archival ethos. Do your kids have the right to be forgotten? Oh, this is a great question. I mean, there was an article recently about Instagram uh, and all the people who post pictures of their kids to Instagram and like what's going to happen when the kids are like 15 and they realize that there's like, you know, all these like pictures of them when they were two on the internet that they didn't choose to take or post or publicize. Exactly. Right. And there are all sorts of ethical issues there also about ownership. Like all the, the user agreements for these services say that Instagram actually has the rights to these photos. I, for a long time also like have never posted pictures of my kids on these services, not because I'm paranoid that, you know, about them necessarily, but there are these complicated issues about ownership, right. And, and what it means to put pictures of your kids on the internet. We live in a world of archives and that the, the, the archival reason of history, uh, in many ways, it persists because of the archival reason of the world in which we live, um, which is that that what is archived, what is stored, 
determines reality. If you can't prove it, right? And what is it like pictures or it didn't happen, right? You know, this is like, you know, the logic of the internet in so many ways, but it's also the logic of our legal system that you, that you need to be able to prove something in court potentially. And documentation is how you do it. But what we live in is a world where documentation matters. And in a lot of ways, I think that that is where these fundamental questions about the history of archives come into play, because this is not just something that came out of nowhere. It's not like, you know, somebody invented a computer and boom, we're in an information society, but that the archival nature of our society is tied incredibly closely into the longer history of how information has shaped the world in the past and up until the present. Thank you, Jason. Thanks, Deb. Thanks, Deb. 